I really have come to believe you're never really on the wrong track. It's just sometimes you're not getting the full download of like, this is what I'm meant to do. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Ikigai Project. In today's episode, I interview Renee Fishman, who is the founder of The Ritual Revolution um, and is really a jack of all trades when it comes to her career and understanding of the human psychology and physiology. Um, She has a a law degree, uh, also worked as a real estate broker. She's a yoga teacher. She's a habit specialist. She blends in all of her knowledge into this really fun conversation we have around um, a few things related to personal growth. Uh, one of them being fear. How do we manage it? Uh, what's the physiology around it? Uh, and on the flip side, growth. You know, how do you think about growth? And, and one thing I really enjoyed about her explaining it was our growth process is like a rubber band. Um, so training it and exposing ourselves to things that um, make us scared, you know, uh, put us outside of our comfort zone is what actually grows us. Um, We talk a lot about the resistance uh, that appears when we do something difficult. And then, of course, we go back into the topic of fear um, and how do you work with it? How do you um, find ways to overcome things that you might be, you know, holding you back a little bit? So it's it's a great conversation um, for those interested in personal growth, in managing, you know, the anxiety and fear that comes with it. And I learned a lot just from this conversation with Renee, and I I hope you do as well. And I'll see you on the flip side of this conversation. Renee, thank you so much for joining the Ikigai Project. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Peter. I'm super excited because I love the work you're doing. Really honored to be a guest. Yeah, I'm excited you're here as well. And there's a lot of topics that I think we're going to cover in the next, you know, 40, 45 minutes. So I want to get right to it. Um... I usually start these conversations as my listeners who have listened to a few of these know um, about your origin story um, and, you know, moments in your life early on that were definitive for you that had a transformational effect. Um, anything you want to share about, you know, the, the Renee growing up that has shaped who you are today? Oh, such a good question. Um, the Renee growing up, uh, the Renee growing up was, a lot in a lot of ways like the Renee of today very curious inquisitive wanting to discover everything and learn about things um creative uh analytical intellectual there's not like a pigeonhole lane and there never has been and that is both my greatest joy of life and also one of my challenges, especially in a world that wants us to be like in your lane. Right. And, um, I, in high school, like I did like a different extracurricular activity every day. (laughs) I was on the newspaper and I was, you know, in the choir and the chamber chorus and I played basketball and like all the realms. And that's kind of always been my thing in college. I was a communication and marketing major at Penn. One of the reasons I chose the communication major is because at the time, at least, you could choose like different focuses. So it was like I did communication and marketing, but other people did communication and psychology or communication and what in history. So it left a lot of flexibility for me to explore. So I did a bunch of classes at Wharton in the marketing department there. And then also 
um, my communication classes, which ran the gamut. And um, I, yeah, I was really into media. I thought I wanted to be a, either a television producer and eventually run a network, or I wanted to be commissioner of the National Hockey League. Um, and one of the classes I took in college was an undergraduate class on uh, the sports and the law. And my dad, who was very practical-minded, when I said I was going to be a communication major, he asked, what are you going to do with that? And I gave the answer that many communication majors at Penn gave, which was, I'm going to go to law school. Um, he was a lawyer for a time. And I've also always had like a fierce sense of justice in me. So when I was really younger, it's interesting, like my eighth grade yearbook, I said I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And it's interesting, well, I'll get to it in a second, because that has very much come full circle. So I, I just felt like the need to fight for the little guy. And I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney at, some, at one point. And then I went to law school with the idea that I was going to be a sports lawyer and get to be commissioner of the NHL. And I did do some sports law early in my legal career. Um, I worked with a partner who, did, who represented a lot of the unions. And I worked on a big litigation involving the NCAA and the NIT tournament um, for years. It was an antitrust litigation. It was very cool. Got a lot of good experience, but I knew very early on that I was not cut out to be a lawyer, like in a law firm practice for my life. Um, I also did false advertising work, which was very much like that sense of justice, right? Like making sure that people are representing the truth in their advertising is something that I still believe in to this day. And, um, and that goes for companies as well as people, right? So it's like interesting when you see that the, and this has been a theme for, for a lot of my life and especially in recent years, like the themes are there still, but they just apply in different ways. It's like, I really have come to believe you're never really on the wrong track. It's just sometimes you're not getting the full download of like, this is what I'm meant to do. So I, um, I did false advertising work. I did some sports antitrust work. I also did technology licensing. I went in-house to a company and I did the same thing like every day, negotiating the same license, which for someone who craves variety is like, like it's a death. And so I left that and went into real estate as a residential broker in New York because I felt like that could be done better. <laughs> like, like there could be a higher standard. I felt like people are making a huge investment I don't care if you're renting an apartment, you know, at the time for $2,000, which doesn't get you much in New York today, you know, or if you're buying something for a few hundred thousand, right? You're taking money at your home and, and, you know, agents, the way it works then is like, and a lot of times now is meet me on the corner and I'll show you apartments. I'm like, who does this? Like, right. and so I went with this mindset of like, I'm going to be an advisor, like the way I was as a lawyer, you know, and when clients called me, and they said, I want to buy an apartment. I was like, great, you'll come to my office. We'll have a actual proper meeting and I'll learn what you want. And then we'll create a plan, right? If you called me for a legal issue, I wouldn't just say like, here's the answer. Like I'd want to know the problem first. And so that was my approach. And a couple of years in, I, I got into personal development more. I started working with a coach and I had this insight at one point that what I was really doing was coaching. Like that it was more than just my, it was more than just being a advisor and like a legal guide, right? Air quotes. Um, that 
if you if you've ever worked with a coach or any of your listeners have ever worked with a coach, you know, like the coach wants to know, like, what is it you want? Like, where are you now? Where do you want to be? And let me help you get there. Right. That's what I did. Right. It's like, where are you now? Where do you want to be? Why? Like, I'm going to help you get there. Right. And then noticing, I started noticing a lot of things that came up, right. For my clients, right. Like I get a client, they'd be so eager and then they'd ghost me, right. Like they'd stop returning calls and I'm like, you know, or they'd kind of drag their heels. And I'm like, you said you wanted this, like what's going on. And I started learning more about, that was really when I started doing more personal development. I went to Tony Robbins, Unleash the Power Within, and it was a profound moment for me. Um, so I'll pause on that for a second. I didn't know who Tony was before I, before I went, like I saw a talk someone gave, it was about how to get better results. And they said something about a firewalk and I was sold. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I covered flying trapeze in early in my legal career, it's 2003, and that tramp, tra- uh, trapeze and trampoline have been my sport since then. And so I love adventure. I love climbing on things. I love, and trapeze has been a, just a wonderful embodiment of to really study how the body reacts under fear and how we adapt to fear situation. Can, can you talk about that for, for those who aren't familiar about what, what the trapeze looks like? Uh, so flying trapeze is like in the circus. Um, you know, so you, there's a platform, it's like 25 feet high and you climb a ladder and you stand on the platform and you take a flying trapeze bar and you step off the platform holding the bar. Now, when you first start this, by the way, you're in safety lines, right? So like you have a belt around you and then they're attached to safety lines and there's someone on the ground with a big rope like a belay system like you'd use in rock climbing mm-hmm. um and so you're gonna be safe right but there's still like you're holding onto a bar with your hands maybe you don't maybe you've never done that before like maybe you've never done a pull-up right like you don't have to be able to do a pull-up to do this you know and and someone's giving you commands on how to move your body and you are moving your body in space Right. So first you have to jump off a platform that's 25 feet up in the air and then you have to acclimate to moving your body in space. And most of us do not do that because most of us don't leave the ground. Right. Like, right. Unless we're going into a pool. Right. And like we spend our time on the ground as a little kid. When I was three, my parents lost me at a public swimming complex and they found me at the edge of the high dive. And like apparently someone had to come up behind me and someone went in the water and like that was me like. I got kicked out of a play group for teaching the other kids how to climb up to the chandelier. My mom likes to say that I'm the reason they have a law that requires window guards on windows. So, um, so I mean, I took to that. I was on vacation at Club Med when I discovered this. It was like, I remember climbing the ladder and having all of these like butterflies in my stomach, like the adrenaline was pounding. It was a fear moment but I was also super excited. And it was my first clue that fear and excitement have the same physiology, Mm -hmm. the same body experience. The only difference is the story in your mind, Mm -hmm. right? I was excited to try a trapeze. So what I was feeling in my stomach was not at that point, like fear. It was, it was excitement. I was, I was like climbing, you know, and then there was like a one moment when I let go of the bar, because that, that was the first time I was like, wait, I have to let go. Like, you know, standing on the board, I remember thinking, 
well, I'm holding onto the bar, so I'll be fine when I step off because as long as I can keep my hands around this bar, I'll be okay. Hmm. And then when I had to let go of the bar to land in the net, the flying trapeze is a net. Um, I remember thinking, how is this going to work? And it worked, you know, because there was someone on the line to like kind of let you down safely. Right. Fast forward to today, I. I do find I do a lot of my trapeze without safety lines. I've kind of graduated in levels, um, but there's always fear. There, I just went back last weekend. It, they reopened where I train in New York, the outdoor rig. We have an indoor space too, um, but for COVID, obviously that's still closed, and you know we have to fly with masks. So that it was my first time in over four months, and it was on a trapeze rig that I'm not used to and it was outside so elements are different and you're four months rusty and I've had a lot of comebacks from trapeze like because over the 17 years I've been flying I've had winters off I've had years that I've taken off because of illness or injury so every time you come back it's a little bit like the first time again and this time I was like orienting with a mask on and you know all of a sudden realizing yes eyes and ears are very important for our proprioception like where we are in space but like two of my senses were covered and you know sensory awareness is sensory awareness you you lose two you lose two right so it's like it was a little different navigating both on trapeze and on the trampoline with a mask on you know it's like just more to adjust to and so it's been kind of and we'll talk about this i'm sure a little bit later too that it's been a fascinating way for me to explore how fear shows up in the body and the mind and how to work with fear and work with resistance in an embodied way beyond the mental chatter that we often get stuck in around it yeah and I think that maybe we can go into that topic now because it, it's kind of the perfect time. And you mentioned a little bit earlier that the physiological experience between fear and excitement is the same thing. And I think I have some trouble wrapping my head around that idea. I, I get it. Um, but when, you know, when I go through a fear based situation, right, whether it's at work or at home, um, I usually feel it as like a contraction. Whereas excitement, again, you know, not really having had thought too much about this, excitement's about kind of a loss of control, you know, not so much like a shying away and a freezing of it. But how, how do you how do you think about it when you experience these emotions in your body? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll, I'll give you both my own experience as well as some things I've observed in 17 years of seeing a lot of people try trapeze for the first time because there's a bunch of you know patterns one of the things I do in all my work is I look at pat like patterns patterns of how people behave and right so um there is for me too a contraction sometimes you know in in fear right I mean when I think about even just last weekend when I was on the trapeze for the first time in four months, you know, it's a different environment physically than the one I'm used to flying in. Um, I'm wearing a mask. It's been four months. It's not like I've had a pull-up bar to be working on my strength. Right. So I'm like, Oh, okay. How's this going to work? And, and just feeling it out. And there were definitely like, I was feeling tense and feeling butterflies. Um, 
Now, because I've been doing it so long, I still had awareness around me, right? But what happens often in when our body goes into sympathetic mode, which is, you know, the autonomic nervous system, two parts, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Mm-hmm. We don't control this, right? So sympathetic is what we know is the fight or flight mode. Um, also known as fight, flight, freeze. Um, there's some other Fs, like faint could be one of them. So there's a bunch of different, it's not just fight or flight, but that's how we speak about it, right? Um, right. Everything contracts. So your vision narrows your hearing shuts off. One of my trapeze friends who's the manager of the rig calls it fear muff. It's like a, that's mm. his name for it. And I love that, you know, and you see it a lot with people who are the first time on trapeze, right? When they finally, they're super scared. And, and when it's your first time, the person who's working on the platform, like the instructor is holding onto your belt from behind. So like, you're not just going to fall off, right? So they'll tell you to put your two hands on the bar and, and they're holding you and they're letting you off. So you feel them. And then all of a sudden you're, and by the way, that for a lot of people, that's still very scary, right? You're asking someone to step off a ledge 25 feet up in the air and they don't know what's going to happen next, right? We don't like to not know what's going to happen next, right? right? the environment we're in right now like people are freaking out right because they don't know what's going to happen next like doesn't matter if you have two feet on the ground or if you're about to step off a platform nobody likes to step into something and not know what's going to happen next that's why i love trapeze it's like the metaphor for life right like Mm. you're stepping into the unknown and once they're hanging from the bar the instructor on the ground who's pulling the safety lines will give them certain commands to do the first basic trick that you do this first skill you learn which is called a knee hang and if you've ever been a kid on monkey bars you can do it right it's like you hook your knees over the bar it's about timing not strength right it's like when you do it at the right time it's really easy which is another life lesson from trapeze it's about timing not time management you yeah. know not and not force right you're just a brief physics lesson because it will help i think at the two ends of the swing, if, if you imagine the swing is like a big smile, at the two ends, the peak, you're weightless. And at the bottom is when you're the heaviest, the pull of gravity is the strongest. So all right. activity in a swing in that pendulum happens at the two ends. And so when you're first time, it's really about listening skills, not about like a lot of men, especially men who work out, they're like, oh, I'm going to pull up and be super strong. And like that, they kill themselves because that is not going to help you, right? But if you listen, I always say it's a great place to bring a date because you know if he's a good listener. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you know how someone is if they're a good listener. But part of the challenge with listening is that listening requires hearing. And when people, this doesn't happen to everyone, but it happens to a lot of people who are really scared, you can hear, you can see that they don't hear, right? Like if you're watching, You'll hear the person on the ground give them instructions and they're not responding, right? Or there's a huge delay because they have fear masks on. Right? It's like all your senses narrow because when you go into fight or flight mode, your body's first responsibility is to make sure you're safe. And so it tunes out everything else around you, mm. right? So that is like the first function of the nervous system is your safety. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, is the first function of any system is to preserve itself, 
which also explains a lot about what's happening in our world right now, right? Like when you look at like reactions to the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And you see people who are very against it, right? They feel threatened. Why? Because they're invested in the current system in some way. And a system's mm. first priority is to protect itself. Mm, right. All of this I've learned from trapeze, right? I mean, how cool. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, homeostasis is just like fundamental part of any natural system. So how, how does the system stay within its own boundaries? It, it, it makes sense. Um, so I'm wondering, so if you're in a situation where it's clear your sympathetic nervous system has been activated and it's hijacked you or triggered you in some, some way, um, what, what have you learned that's useful in helping you reground yourself so that you can, you know, deal with the situation that comes from more of the, you know, advanced part of, of the human brain? Yeah, such a good question. So obviously, you know, when you're, if I'm in a trapeze situation, I'm hanging from the bar, right? You can't physically like ground yourself, right? Because you're not on the ground. Right. Uh, so let me, I'm going to give you a couple of different like aspects of this. So one, taking it out of that context for a second, one is really to physically ground, right? Like if I'm not mm-hmm. on the trapeze, obviously, right? Like if I'm sitting at my computer and something triggers me or I'm, if I have an experience somewhere, right? Is literally to get yourself grounded, like really to, you have to, you dial back, right? And it's like, I will put my feet on the floor mm-hmm. and feel my feet on the floor. Sometimes I lay on the floor, right? As much of your body as you can get onto the floor, if you're really in a panic situation, you know, you want to be as much of you on the earth as possible, mm-hmm. right? And, and start to come into your breath, but really bring awareness to what is touching the earth. Um, That's great. I'm just doing that right now as you're talking and I feel already more grounded you know yeah shoes off you know feel where you if you're sitting in a chair like start to notice like what is touching the chair what is touching the ground Mm. what does the air feel like on my skin right like oh it's humid it feels my skin feels sticky right I, i love the question um how does it feel in my body right now Right. Like, and sometimes people misunderstand that question and they think when I ask it, because I'll ask it sometimes if I'm guiding someone through this and they're like, I don't, I can't label the emotion. And I will often say, well, I'm not asking for the emotion. I'm asking what's the sensation, right? Mm -hmm. Where do you feel sensation? So you don't have to label emotion. In fact, I try not to label emotion in that place. Like I will, if I'm doing it for myself, I will say what is happening, right? Heart racing, stomach tightening, sweaty, clammy, breath is stuck. Mm -hmm. Oh, where's my breath stuck? Oh, it's stuck in my stomach. Put my hand on my stomach. Let me try to breathe there, right? Like um, touch, movement, Sound, breath are very helpful for grounding the nervous system. Yeah, yeah. In that moment. Um, 
Now, part another part of this, and this is something um, we didn't we didn't finish my whole origin story, but you know, last year I was in California. I had had a brain injury five years five years ago this year, and I saw a physical therapist was giving a talk on concussion recovery, and I went to the talk, and then I went to see him. And he noticed I had all these movement dysfunctions, right? And so first I was like, yeah, like my thoracic spine is not flexible and I have shoulder issues because I do trapeze and everyone has shoulder issues. Like that was my mindset. But I didn't squat properly. Like I didn't even know what a hinge was, right? And he said that I was locked in fight or flight mode. Like I was locked in sympathetic overload. Mm -hmm. And at the time I remember thinking like, for years, I'd been doing, you know, I, for the past almost seven years now, every morning I start my morning with a workout of some type. Um, I haven't missed a day. And I do meditation and I do yoga and I do all this stuff, right? And I was like, how is that even possible? But I started working with him. And one of the things I worked with him on, I mean, if you, if you were looking from an outsider, it would look like I was just training which in part I was but I was learning the art of resilience right I mean I learned how to deadlift with load when we first started deadlifting and it took us like a month to get there um just the bar would cause my lower back to spasm right and I I had the belief that my lower back pain pain in air quotes was that meant something was wrong right because I was feeling pain and he said to me at one point I said to him how can I explain what is wrong with me like what the issue is and he said you have movement dysfunctions in part caused by a poor relationship with pain and I was like what do you mean and he said you believe that pain means something's wrong and I was like yeah doesn't that mean, doesn't pain mean something's wrong although I knew from other trainings I had done years before I had mostly relabeled pain as sensation, right? And so part of my work with him, this will come back to the nervous system, right? Is was training the nervous system on resilience and, and how to adapt. Um, and this really is something I've been learning for years in trapeze and trampoline, especially in my trampoline work. Trampoline is a little different from trapeze. I mean, you're on... Um, a tramp, like I'm talking not a little backyard trampoline, but a, an Olympic trampoline. Um, my trampoline coach, we talk about the concept of desensitization. So when I first started on the trampoline, I bounced very low off the trampoline because bouncing high is scary. You want to make sure you can land safely, right? But over time, especially as you're doing bigger tricks, right? I learned, I learned how to do front tuck. If you're going to do a front flip you have to get high enough off the trampoline to do it, right? And you have more time if you bounce higher, but bouncing higher is scary. And so how do you, you know, now this is where we talk about comfort zone, right? It's more comfortable to bounce lower. That's my comfort zone. And often in our culture, we talk about like break out of your comfort zone and the nervous system does not like that, mm. right? I think of the comfort zone as a rubber band. If you break the rubber band, you have no container, right? And the nervous system needs a container. It needs to know it's going to be safe. And so what my trampoline coach explained to me and what we do is 
called desensitization, which is basically expanding your comfort zone. We're expanding the rubber band, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like taking up the height a little bit at a time in safe ways, right? So I'll work on something bouncing higher and he'll throw in um, a cushion so that the landing on the trampoline is softer. Um, and so, you know, when I first started to learn front tucks, I did them in safety lines and, and then eventually I took out the safety lines and um, now I can do them. And like some of them are better and some of them are worse, you know, but learning how to fall and that you're okay when you fall, right? Like my first one's out of safety lines, everyone I landed on my ass. Um, front tucks has been a really good journey for me to really understand a lot of these concepts. Um, you know, I, I was doing them. I felt confident. It was a long time before I felt confident enough to take off the safety lines. And when I did, I landed them on my ass. And it was again that narrowing of the of the senses, right? Like it was like, okay, I'm bouncing, I'm bouncing. And it's like, okay, you you have to commit. You're gonna do it. And once you tuck, like you're in. And a front tuck, especially, is a blind landing, which means you, there's nothing to spot before you come out. So it's scary. Right. Um. And I would, the next thing I knew I was on my ass, you know, it's like I had made it around and I was on my ass, but I was safe. Right. And then the more I did them, the more I could kind of like, eventually I could tell, like, I'm going to land on my ass. Like I knew it, but I couldn't change it in the rotation. Right. But then I got to a point where I could tell if I was going to land on my ass and I could adjust as I was coming out of the tuck to land on my feet. And I could adjust my landing to stay on my feet. And so what was happening, if we want to put it in the nervous system frame, is that my, my sensory awareness was growing, right? In that when it was so new, it was like, oh, you see is this narrowness, right? And it's like, just do the thing, right? right? Over time and experience and practice, awareness expands. Mm. And you can see more and feel more and you start to know where you are more. And you get more comfortable with it. And then in that, I had the ability to start bouncing a little higher and feeling. And every time you take it a little higher, you're feeling out again, right? Because the physics of it is going to change when you're higher, right? Right. So that is, you know, it's about really practice. Yeah. um, By the way, the reason I started doing trampoline was to support trapeze, right? Because to fly out of lines, like meaning without the safety lines, when you come off the bar, you're landing in the net and the net is a big trampoline. And you have to have the ability to have very quick reflexes on the flying trapeze if something, I'm gonna use air quotes, goes wrong, right? Meaning like sometimes it's not necessarily wrong, like, oh my God, there's a big catastrophe. But if I'm the catcher is swinging from the other trapeze and he misses me in, in a catch, and I'm expecting to be caught, I have to have very quick instincts to land safely on my back, which means twisting in midair after a miss. And in order to be able to do that without safety lines, I have to be able to control my body in space and react quickly. And the only way you can train that is on the trampoline. Mm-hmm. With repeat, you know, you have to do a lot of repetition. And that's the same way you train anything in life. Right. Yeah. So it really relates. Like anything you want to do, it gets easier and you have more awareness around it the more you do it. And then that expands your comfort zone. Yeah, I love that. And um, the analogy with the rubber band is so appropriate here because it's it's the incremental 
pulling and stretching that allows you to, you know, uh, expand your, your area of awareness and area of comfort, um, and, and grow. So I think it's a good reminder for all of us that if we want to make some changes in our lives, it really has to build with, uh, build small, you know, in small steps and also kind of help your mind and body trust it in itself. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like we jump in we try to do stuff and change stuff, but we haven't built enough reps in to know that, Hey, this is actually something we can do. Um, because we take too big of a step trying to do the first, uh, yeah, trying to make that change. So I'll say on that too, you know, um, one of the challenges in our culture is the conditioning we have that change and transform. I mean, so change can happen in an instant, but transformation, which is not the same as change, takes longer, right? right. And so in the coaching world, for example, one of my mentors, um, Joanna Linda Maum, I want to give her credit. She really draws this distinction between the breakthrough, which is what everyone thinks they want, and the transformation, right? And a breakthrough is an instant like awareness. But, and a lot of coaches stop there. They're like, oh, you have breakthroughs, great. But right. like, breakthrough doesn't do anything for you unless you create a transformation from it. In my life, I've had a lot of breakthroughs that are still not transformations because the transformation is what takes time and you have to know how to work with it. So the coach training I did um, with Joanna is called sacred death. And it's all focused on coaches and practitioners who want to help their clients create transformation. And one of the metaphors I love about this, so I do, I'm a yoga teacher and I've also done um, training in yin yoga, which is a slower style of yoga and it's mostly Mm -hmm. grounded postures. And I love the metaphor there. It's like in yin yoga, you're not working with muscle. You're working with the ligaments and the fascia and the and joints. And I think of it like teeth, right? So I have a friend who's an orthodontist, right? And anyone who's ever had braces knows that that's a long process. You know, there's a little bit of sensation involved for sure when you have braces, right? You want to get the teeth straightened. But your teeth don't just move overnight. You can't just like, you know, take like a... You know, I mean, yeah, if you, if someone punches you in the mouth and you lose your teeth, then you, you know, you're, you can move your teeth overnight, right? But you won't have teeth, right? So it's like, what? And it's like weight loss or anything that people want to do. You want to build strength, you know? And I was working with my physical therapist last year every day for four months, daily training. This was not like me laying on a table and him doing manipulation. It was like in the weight room. And I'd be like, when am I going to see progress? And he's like, you are, but you can't always see it, right? But we want to see it. We want to feel it, right? You want to feel sore after your workout. You want to know you work, right? You want to see the results of your efforts instantaneously. That's the world we live in. But that is, that's the like mental world we live in. But that is not the physical reality world we live in, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing in nature happens overnight. And so it is like, like that transformation is like having your teeth straightened it's consistent pressure over time right um that's wonderful and really well said um i want to go back to a word that you mentioned a little bit earlier in this conversation which is also a hot topic these days um it's and it's resilience um how do we how do we become more resilient, especially when there's more uncertainty and, you know, change happening in our world? Um, 
what from your experience have you noticed about resilience and how do we how do we start building that muscle yeah well, i think you used the key term right there right it's a muscle it's a muscle that we have to build and like all muscles it's not like you can't you can't lift weights once right it's like that doesn't work like that right um it you know the challenge and it's funny my physical therapist who i worked with last year would, would say like i didn't have good resilience you know like i would I would be like, something's wrong if I felt a little sensation. And so a lot of it is, is learning how to lean in to that sensation and to know that not all sensation is pain. And um, there's a great quote that I'm actually really right now. It says, pain is necessary, suffering is optional. And I was thinking about this last week and I was like, yeah, but pain is actually suffering because sensation is necessary but when you call it pain you're already saying it's wrong and then you are trying to push it away right because that's what we do with pain in our mm. culture right we take medication for it we try to so we try to solve the pain problem so that we don't have pain instead of looking for what's causing the sensation mm. and only by looking at what's causing the sensation can we build resilience. You can't build resilience by taking Tylenol to your pain, mm -hmm. right? You can build resilience by looking at like, what is causing my headache right now? And sitting with it and being like, oh, my tolerance for having a headache is actually bigger than it was yesterday, right? And that's resilience, but in a very simple metaphor, right? Mm. So it, like when you can lift more weight, you've built resilience. To the load you were previously carrying but if every time you pick up the weight to build muscle you're like ah this is too heavy and it causes pain it means something's wrong i'm going to put down the weight like you're never going to build resilience right and so in our going back to the when we're talking about systems right if you're so focused on protecting the system you'll never build resilience mm -hmm. because you're going to push away the weights that are coming to you build resilience yeah. right it's like someone's just dropped like with like with covid right like someone's just dropped a big sack of weights on our deck yeah. and we're trying to lift it and we're like yeah this is too heavy i don't like it and so we put it down well you can't build strength that way right so there's strength in a lot of things that um you know if you look at COVID is a great example, right? Everyone from the beginning is like, I don't want to have lockdown. When are we going to get back to normal? Like we're just, everyone's waiting to go, I'm going to use air quotes again, back to normal. But that's not how nature works. Nature works in cycles, right? And there, and nothing goes back. Everything moves forward. So we repeat the same cycles, right? We repeat the seasons every year, but we don't go backwards. There's a new season right it's like you have spring every year but you're not having spring last year spring this year right mm. and in our culture we don't like death right we don't talk about it we don't talk about grief and so what did we have we have the situation where we have this pandemic and everyone has to stay inside and people are dying and no one wants to talk about the death part and also there's a death of like normal routines like so it's not just Death is not just people dying. I want to make that really clear. There's a loss or a death of 
the life you had, the, the routines, whatever you considered normal is no longer. And that has to be grieved. It doesn't mean you have to sit around for weeks crying about it, but it has to be acknowledged. Mm. And what you've lost has to be acknowledged because that's how you move on. But what we've done, at least in this, I, you're not in the States, but at least in many of the States, right, was waiting for this return to normal. I don't like this. The lockdown isn't good. And yes, it's, people are, it's a scary time. It's the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen next. But they're waiting for this return to normal. So they're not embracing what's happening. And then what happened when they started to reopen quickly, but the, what happened wasn't acknowledged. They're trying to go back to normal. And all of a sudden you get this rise in cases again, right? Like, because it's not honoring nature and it's not building resilience because what they're doing is pushing away the weights that were dropped on their deck, right? They're like, I don't want to lift the weights, right? right? Lifting right. the weights is like staying in quarantine and staying in the, in the discomfort and the sensation that is coming up. And this is like our cultural, you know, our culture looks for anything to escape that, right? So social media and television and, and news and work is a great way to escape, right? The busy yeah. part, right? That is what's happening right now. So it's very hard to build resilience without doing the work. And sometimes the work, by the way, doesn't look like work and that's where people get people like you and me I think get confused by that often or at least I'll speak for myself right achievers I'll put it that way achievers often get confused by what the work is mm -hmm. because we want to think the work is like doing something but sometimes the work is the not doing mm -hmm. like sitting in stillness sitting in silence um sitting like a lot of, you know, and just being, mm -hmm. I find that very difficult personally. It's the hardest, which I've spent a lot of time practicing that. Mm. And it's hard because it doesn't look like you're doing anything and there's nothing to shift when you finish your session. Right. But that also is work and that builds resilience, your ability to sit with what's difficult and what's uncomfortable and hold space for it is the most crucial work it's the work that's needed now more than any other yeah um so related to this topic and i think we can talk about this topic for a, a, a while um but i want to kind of pivot slightly to the topic of resistance and and something that both you and i uh you know really care about and also get stuck with is this voice in our head or you know this feeling or fear that holds us back from from doing the work that we're trying to do or being the person that we want to be. And so I'm curious, can you talk to, um, talk to us about the resistance? What is it? How does it show up in us? Yes. I'm pulling up my notes because I have all, the whole thing I emailed you that I took out of the email, <laughs> <laughs> all my resistance archetypes. I love resistance. Um, you know, going back to, my story, right? One of the things that kind of set me on my journey was when I first started my real estate business and seeing the patterns that would show up in clients and seem very eager to get started, but then would pull back, right? right? And that was when I started really studying human behavior and, and realizing that what I was doing was coaching. And since then I've evolved. And a, a big thing that people come to me for is 
I know what I should be doing, but I'm not doing it. And that is resistance, right? Like what they are saying is resistance is in my way. Help me get it out. Right. And um, I think, you know, Stephen Pressfield talks about resistance and we often think of like resistance is just this like, I don't want to do it, but resistance can be super sneaky. And the way I have learned it from my mentor is, is in the form of archetypes, right? And the archetypes show up. And so what's confusing sometimes to people is sometimes your resistance can show up even when you're super excited about something, right? And, and as an example, this discussion we are having and me being on your podcast, right? When you asked, I was 100%, yes, I want to do it. And then you sent me an email and I spent a week not responding, which in terms of me is not even a bad thing, you know, but I got definitely, and as I was responding to you, I just sat and really touched in with what archetypes were showing up. And I think that'll be the best way for me to explain kind of what happened. Right. So there was the busy one. Right. I was like, my schedule is so busy. I can't fit it in. Like I was looking at my calendar. I'm like, there's too much going on. When am I going to fit in this call? I mean, ridiculous. Right. Like if something's important to you, there is time. I believe that time is my creation. I don't subscribe to that's a whole other topic about how I view time. There's always time for what's important to you and what you care about always. And I, and I cared about this, but it was like my first reaction was like, I don't have time, right? And we often get caught in that lie. That lie is of that I'm so busy is a form of resistance. We don't often think of that as such, right? So I'm, I'm trying to give you examples of resistance that maybe many of your listeners would be like, no, I am busy. And I'm like, okay, well, if, you know, if I told you your kid like just got hit by a car and you needed to move everything to get him to the hospital, you would not be busy in a very quick moment, right? Like everything right. on would get moved right um i often use a better example is like if your basement floods somehow you're able to clear your schedule to deal with your flooded basement right like right point yeah you know it's like when something is truly important you find the time right and so when you're not it's either it's resistance if you say you really want to do it or sometimes it could just be like this really isn't as important to me as i say it is right um, there was the flake, right? Or sometimes it comes up as the avoider, which was really for a few days, I just totally forgot to respond to your email, right? Um, then this is, I think, a big one for, for people like me, and, and I, you've brought this up in our other conversations, um, the demurring one, right? Which was the voice that was asking me, what what can you add to the conversation, right? I have nothing to add a value to this topic. Why would Peter even want to interview me? Like, there's no point, you know, other people can say it better. No one needs to hear from me, right? Um, there, I had a little bit of victim show up for me too, because I had just listened to your trailer and I was blown away by it. And I was like, oh my God, look at how Peter is doing this great work. And I'll never be able to get my work out like this in this way. And no one's going to care. And, and like, how come he can do it, but I can't do it. And why does everyone else seem to have like the ability to get their work out? And I'm still stuck in mine. And like, I can't 
share my work. I mean, it's like I can go down the rabbit hole there, you know, and that's very victim, right? Like, woe is me. Um, and then a favorite of many high achievers um, who are also perfectionists, um, like of everything. And it comes from a place of service, by the way. My complicator loves to show up in this situation, right? And she was like, you need a better website. You need to have like the list and, and you know, you need a good landing page before you can be on a podcast. How are people going to know about you? How are they going to find more? And you need to have your bio ready and your photo and all this stuff, right? I mean, if you waited for all this stuff to be perfect, you'd never do anything, right? Yeah. Um, those were some of my big, you know, those were, I'd say, like, my big ones that showed up just and this is, you know, I want to really reiterate this. this. I'm not talking generalities here. I am literally saying this is all that showed up in re- my failure to respond timely to your email to schedule this appointment, right? Yeah. All of this and none of it was just on the surface, by the way, right? And so this goes mm-hmm. to what we just talked about, which is I've spent a long time in being and in conversation and in the ability to see that because years ago I would have just been like, Oh, I forgot. Right. You wouldn't face the resistance or just tuck it away. Right. And so really what, what I looked at with that. Right. And, and also because these all sound like legitimate questions, right? I mean, Oh, I'm busy. Right. Like that's not legitimate. I'm using air quotes. because I know (laughs) people can't see. I use air quotes a lot. Legitimate. Like, People are busy all the time. That's legit, right? You know, um, they were all fear. And also, by the way, as I was writing my response to you, so one of the things that I know to do, and this is very important, is you also have to look at your physiology. We can very much get hit neck up, right, when this is happening. And there's always a physiology happening too. And we forget to look at the physiology. So I started to, as I was writing this email to you, I was noticing what, you know, I took a pause and like, what is happening in my body right now? It's the best question you can ask in any of the situation, right? Mm-hmm. My heart was beating quickly. My hands were shaking. Um, and then I asked myself, why? Right? Because it's great to notice all the archetypes but then you have to go deeper right and it's great to say because we all kind of know i think and if we don't maybe this will be news but resistance is fear right and so that's great that you know it's fear but what is the fear right that's a crucial question like what specifically i i make this point a lot with clients because i think it's very important and not talked about enough which is um fear loves generalities it thrives in the generality so when we're like oh i have fear that's great you know but like if you don't get specific the fear is not going to go away because fear cannot hide in specificity and so one of the best ways that i have found to kind of work with my fear is to get very specific on what fear i have yeah pinpoint it right and, and that's true when I'm feeling overwhelmed by a lot of stuff to do, which is kind of a habitual place I go. Um, 
by the way, resistance archetypes and how resistance shows up for us is habitual, right? So it's a way we learned from the time we were very young and how to respond to situations that create fear for us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of my work is um, habits, right? My program, The Ritual Revolution, is really about breaking the habits that hold you back. Under the surface, it's about like, how do you work with resistance, right? But it's, this is, working with fear is habits work um, in a way that we don't often think about habits work. Because we think about, I want to create better habits. And like, you have no problem creating habits, but, but breaking habits, and this is a breaking habit. Um, my fear was visibility. Like the specific fear at play here was visibility, right? As you know, I love talking about these topics. We've had many conversations, right? But talking about them in a way that they are going to be broadcast, that people are going to hear them, people I don't know, then it opens me up to criticism, right? Who is she? She doesn't like, she doesn't have a doctorate, she doesn't, whatever people are going to say, right? Mm. Um, I personally, one of my kind of tensions in my life is the desire to be seen and the fear of visibility. I believe that I have a theory that that is true for most people, right? One of our putting aside Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I believe that our greatest needs are to be seen, heard, and fully expressed. And that is also the greatest risk we have to ourselves as beings in this world because visibility puts you out there. Right you can become a target right and so it's like you look like martin luther king was assassinated like right it's like people get killed for being visible right like if you don't if you want to stay safe you hide right that's like the laws of nature right that's how animals escape predators right they hide they blend into the background so becoming visible is what we need because it's like essential for our survival to express ourselves in the world and it's also the greatest threat to our survival. So there is that, that's a tension that is like universal, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I could just see that, then it's easier to work with it. But when you're just like, oh, I'm afraid, right? When you don't know what the fear is, it's very hard to work with it. Right. Uh, how did you get to that specific, like the specific I'm not going to say it right. The specifics of that fear. Like, what did you do specifically that allowed you to realize, oh, it's, it's this here? I mean, this is over a decade of doing this work. Mm-hmm. Right? So some of it is just a product of that, of really, and it's over and over. You know what I mean? Like, this was not the first time my fear of visibility has been an issue right i mean it's that's something that's like in my it's in my consciousness now after years of working with it right so i'm very aware i'm aware that it's there right so it's really in this case just a matter of being like oh let's call it out you know um exposure to stuff right i mean exposure to things like this podcast right like someone's gonna listen to this and say oh yeah, I, I kind of have that, right? And then once it's in your awareness, the great thing about awareness is it, it doesn't shrink once you expand it. 
Now, sometimes it can narrow in, in certain cases, right? That's why even though we have breakthroughs, like it takes a long time to get to the transformation. Right. But once something's in your awareness, the more you work with it, the more of this work you do, you expand your awareness to bring in more things and then you start to see more and you can see where it shows up. And so I have made it my mission in life to study my patterns. I think that's a good place for anyone to start, right? To notice how I show up, what keeps me small, mm. you know, um, and what the fear is. I've worked with really good coaches and mentors who have the capacity to hold space for me to go deep. I think that's really important. It's very difficult to do this work on your own. Right. And it's very difficult to do this work. There's a lot of coaches and people out there, but like not everyone has the capacity to hold space for the death. And some of us, you really need to be able and willing. It's not just ability. It's a willingness. Because yeah. we're all able, but not everyone's willing to look. And to look at the parts that maybe aren't so pretty, mm. Mm. you know, and to see how you're showing up and what is keeping you small and to be honest, right? Because it's easy to be like, oh, I'm busy. You know, I've taken a bunch of breaks off of social media and some people are like, good for you. Social media is crap. I'm like, it is but it wouldn't be honest for me to say that that's the only reason I've taken breaks. Part of the reason I've been off of social media is because I've been afraid of being visible in this new phase of work that I'm going into and what people will think and how will they judge. Right. And like, and especially some of the work I do in some realms feels very esoteric to people. And then it's like, Oh, you're one of those woo woo people even though I try to make it all practical. That's part of my calling is to make, take the esoteric and make it practical. But all that judgment is like, yes, there's a lot of wrong things and bad things about social media, especially right now. And that's not the reason or the sole reason that I've not been on social media, right? And so that's me being honest to say this is what it is. And when I can see it in myself, then it can't control me anymore. Right. Because then it's like, I, even if I don't take the next step right away to get back on social media or become more visible, at least I'm aware that this is the reason I'm doing it. I think that honesty with yourself is crucial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we look at wrapping up this conversation, there's a lot here that, um, again, we could go deeper on. So maybe there's a part two on the horizon sometime. Um, but I'd like to, to wrap up with the just the question around. The, the topic of this podcast, which is Ikigai, the Japanese word for the reason for being, um, what does Ikigai mean to you? Um, I love this term. And I, you know, I really, for me, feel like I want to make meaning, right? That's, that's how I view it, right? It's like, what, what will help me make meaning in this world, give people and help other people make meaning is really part of what I'm here to do. Um, this kind of goes back to my origin story, you know, of this 
healer, you know, doctor, lawyer, right? And last year I I realized, you know, so I'd, I had said as a real estate broker, I'm a coach for people in transition who need to move. And at one point I was like, well, I can coach other people in transition who don't need to move. Right. And coaching is a better business model, right? So I was like, oh, I'm going to evolve. And then I learned the stuff about my nervous system, right? And I sold my apartment, ventured out into the unknown to live home free. And I realized at that point, oh, if I'm going to live home free, I need to find home in my body. And that, from that, I knew I was going to do my yoga teacher training because I had done some advanced trainings, but I hadn't done the 200 hour, which is like the fundamental you need to start teaching yoga. And then I met the physical therapist and learned about my being locked in in uh, sympathetic overload. And I realized at my yoga teacher training, when I said why I was there, I was like, you know, I used to say, I don't help people move or find homes. And I realized, yes, that is part of my purpose. I am here to help people navigate transition. I'm also here to help them find home within themselves and move through life with greater ease. And as part of that, I'm also a Reiki practitioner and, and helping people heal and be whole, heal not in the sense of fix what's broken, but live as their whole being. Healing is making whole, right? And so things that I've done for years, like helping people with productivity, to me, it's, it's, that's a holistic, right? You can't have that without mind, body, soul, spirit, all of it is connected. Mm. And I was like, everything comes full circle. It's like, ah, real, real estate was the right path. It was just, I needed to be on that path for a little bit to realize that it wasn't the physical structure that you live in that is my calling to help you with, but the physical body you live in and how you are moving through life, not just how you're going to move from one house to the next. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause you can have many houses or apartments, but you only get one body right. and that. And so it is, that's part of my purpose. So that to me is icky guys. Like it's like finding all those little threads, like they're all there. And this again, I'm going to say, cause it can never be said too much. You can't see them until you stop, right. right? You have to slow down and then have that like, Whoa, Oh my God. Yes. Like it all, like for years, I was like, I don't help people find homes. And I was like, yes, I do, but not in the way you think. Right? And, and that, and so that to me is like, you guys, like what that path, like that path that's yours, that, often um comes from your deepest wounds right it's like where you're called to serve and and to know that you know there are other people who are going to need this because we're not alone and that is i think an important thing for anyone when we talk about mental health especially to remember is that whatever you're going through there are other people who are going through it and there are other people who've gone through it and you're not alone but because we don't talk about it we all think we're alone. And that's why I love mm -hmm. what you're doing here, Peter, because you're creating a container for us to talk about things that nobody talks about. And as a result, we all think we're going through life in this like lane where no one gets what we're going through. Whereas if we really open up and we allow ourselves to be visible, we will realize 
that many people, not necessarily the same exact thing, but there's only so many patterns in the world, you know, like, so. I love it. That That's great. And, and thank you for your kind words. I, I hope this is just, uh, like you said, the container, the space for people to feel safe and to talk about uh, real issues like mental health is such a foundational component of who we are and, and how we um, relate with the world. So, so thank you for sharing your experience. There's so much that I learned. I'm going to parse back this episode and take a whole bunch of notes that I can apply in my life. Uh, for those of us who want to follow your work, get in touch, uh, what's the best way for, for them to reach out? Um, so they can, on social media, I'm at Renee Fishman everywhere. So that makes it easy and I am getting back on. So. <laughs> um, uh, my blog is mymeadowreport.com. So like lost in the meadow. And you can also go to reneefishman.com. It will take you there. And um, the other thing I just want to add to about mental health, you can fit this in if you want to edit it somewhere. Mental health is physical health. Like mm-hmm. they're not different, right? I mean, we talk about mental health. But I think it's really important to make that connection. So that good. Yeah. That's happening in the mind is also happening in the body. And so it's like my pet peeve a little bit when we talk about air quotes again, mental health. And I've written about this on my blog because it's not just mental. There's a component in the body and what happens in the mind informs the body. And so you can't, in my opinion, you cannot separate them out. Right. And a lot of times people get focused on the physical illness or dis-ease that they have. And it starts in your mind. So even if it's not a diagnosed mental health, disease or issue your thoughts live in your body your emotions live in your body that's great yeah yeah and i think the word well-being actually fits more of this holistic way of looking at the mind-body connection for sure um, yeah, wellness. So f- yeah, that's what i love wellness wellness yeah hopefully our conversation evolves from here i'm learning so much just from conversations with people about how this even this topic needs to evolve beyond just the containers it's currently in. So so thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, Cool. And I'll include all of the, the notes, uh, the show notes in the, you know, places where people can find you. So we'll, uh, we'll make sure to do that. Thank you so much for listening. Special thank you to Hugh for the theme music. You can check them out at here, Hugh, H U E dot bandcamp.com. If you're interested in learning more about the Ikigai Project, you can check out the blog at ikigai.blog. And if you found this content useful, please subscribe or tell a friend or family member about this podcast. I'll see you next week for another episode of the Ikigai Project. Take good care for now, everyone. I need to feel love.